Um, can everyone hear me? It's good. Okay. Thank you for coming to our podcast listening session. This is very exciting. This is a first for both of us, um, hosting a, a listening session of this sort. And the idea is to kind of do a deep dive of sorts in the span of about 30 minutes and try to learn about the podcast and how it was done and the kind of story that it's trying to tell. I am Baldeep. I'm a fellow with the RTG Minor Cosmopolitanisms and my research is in discard studies and colonial infrastructure. Uh, I'm also part of two related working groups, uh, the Low Carbon Media and Methods Working Group and a DFK-funded network called Waste in Motion, which operates in Germany and we're trying to kind of formalize discard studies as a field, but in the German context uh, and see what comes of it. Anya is a storyteller, a podcaster with a decade of experience as a journalist, a cultural scientist by training. Anya has also completed the Night Science Journalism Fellowship Program at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. The reason why we are here today is because Anya is also the creator of the Plastic Spirit podcast on plastic people and the planet and co-producer of Life in the Soil, one of my favorite podcasts, which is a podcast on soil ecology. So welcome to this space, Anya. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks so much, um, Baldeep and Sophia, for inviting me here. I'm really excited. I've never done a listening session. Um, yeah, and I'm just looking forward to it. I started listening to The Plastic Sphere when I began my PhD in Potsdam. And I, I used to listen to it on the bus. Um, when I first began researching plastics and sort of the cultures around it, I couldn't help but notice how so much of it focused on disentangling ourselves from plastics and not really on, well, the how and the why of the entanglements. Like, how did we get here in the first place? Mm -hmm. And your podcast just kind of did that for me uh, in a very accessible way. I think my main question for you to start off would be what inspired the idea of this podcast? Like, why did you decide to build this project? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's pretty much exactly what you're talking about, these entanglements that I became more and more aware of as I was looking into the subject. And um, about 10 years ago or so, I watched uh, this documentary, Plastic Planet. Oh, yeah. And even before that, I, I read the first reports of this garbage accumulating in the Pacific. Mm -hmm. And I think like many other people, that was an image that somehow uh, captured my imagination. Like that, something that completely surprised me that um, our the trash of our civilization is out there in the middle of nowhere circulating. And that just um, started a whole long journey into the subject. Um, and since I was a journalist at the time, you know, I had a good excuse to do research <laughs> on the subject and um, ask experts and start investigating. Mm -hmm. And so repeatedly on and off, I did reports over the next few years. I, I traveled and, and saw different parts of this issue. Um, but I think the, the thing was that it all stayed pretty much fragmented because as a journalist, you know, you usually you, you, you start over at the beginning every time with every report, mm -hmm. you know, and you have very little space. Yeah. Um, but the subject just got more and more fascinating and more and more entangled. Yeah. And I felt that I really wanted to put all of that into context. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that really impresses me, like the breadth of kind of experts that you've consulted in different like episodes. It's not really like focused to one geographical area or even like one um, field of expertise, but it's kind of spread all over, which builds this amazing holistic photo of what's going on. So let's get into it. Um, can you play us episode one, uh, where bioplastics come from? Thank you. When you think of a symbol for our plastic age, what comes to mind? For me, it's plastic bags. In 2012, I visited a factory in Neuruppin, a small town in Germany not far from Berlin. In that little factory, they were producing plastic bags for big supermarkets in Germany, Switzerland, Austria and the Netherlands. Millions of them each month. Not the usual kind of plastic bag but grocery bags made from bioplastics. The loud noise that you're hearing is the extruder. It's this big machine that produces plastic bags. On one side, they pour in small plastic pellets and some other secret ingredients, and then the machine presses them into large stretches of foil. Ronny Oelke was the man who took care of the production there. And he told me this biomaterial feels different from normal polyethylene. And that it smells more natural. A bit like French fries, he said. Or a bit like dry hay, I thought. I had become increasingly interested in this topic and was doing research for a radio feature. Could bioplastic be the solution to the plastic pollution problem? German supermarkets sold bags made from this material with slogans like 100% compostable or smile for the environment. So I followed these bags to where they were made to find out more. Ich nehme die Pflanze, gewinne daraus die Stärke. Die Stärke wird fermentiert. At the plastic bag factory in Neuruppin, I also got to talk to sales manager Jens Bogel. He told me the bags were made from cornstarch. Or rather, the polylactic acid that you can get from the starch. This material is called PLA. The starch from the corn is fermented and turned into a polymer, he said. To produce the bags, the biopolymer is then mixed with normal plastic from fossil sources. And it is then biodegradable, the sales guy said. Sounds great, right? Only that it's different than you might think. What I like about this excerpt is that it shows how what we might assume to be better plastics do not necessarily have lineages that are removed from bad plastics. Um, and it seems that bioplastics are marketed as a product that somehow has the use value of plastic, but disappears into thin air or soil when added to compost. But that's not really the case, is it? <laughs> yeah. No, not really. <laughs> I had put a lot of hopes into bioplastics at first. That was in 2012, so 10 years ago. Um, but what I learned was that bioplastics are a very diverse suite of materials. 
And that the crucial thing here is terminology and conditions, what biodegradable means and what the conditions are. After I visited this um, factory in Neuropopin, um, I learned that the pellets, so the raw material, the virgin pellets, were produced um, in Ludwigshafen at the BASF, at the big uh, chemical factory. So, of course, I wanted to see that and I got the chance to go there. Um, it's like a whole city that looks like a steampunk vision, you know, with all the pipes in the air and like aluminum and factories everywhere. It's like a whole quarter and all the streets have names that are somehow connected to chemistry. Um, and it really showed me, you know, bioplastics, they don't come from an organic farm and um, they're not grown on a tree, but they come from the same industrial settings yeah. oftentimes. And in this case, this was PLA, and this was a kind of PLA that was made from both both fossil and renewable sources, which was also startling, right? Um, a fossil-based material that can biodegrade, yeah. or a mixture that can biodegrade. But there was a caveat to that that they told me about at the lab, which was that the PLA was only industrially compostable, so only at an industrial composting plant. That means, you know, in your home compost or in nature, it wouldn't um, biodegrade. It would only do that under certain conditions, which were a certain moisture, a certain temperature, which was quite high, 60 degrees at least. Um, and you needed the microbes, right? Because biodegradation is about microbes. And we oftentimes don't think about that, yeah. that those are the creatures then doing the work. That's a really good segue into our next excerpt, um, which is about how microbes interact with plastics and how that's been a surprising um, revelation for science as well, um, where you spoke to two scientists, right, who look at microplastics in the ocean and found that they're very populated surfaces. Um, can you play us microbes on plastic, please? Plastic is a new environment in the ocean. It's only been around, you know, since after World War II. So like an exoplanet, this is a surface that we don't really know the conditions there. And we don't really know how those conditions will interact with existing life forms. So in a way, it is a new surface out there. And we don't understand how it's going to ultimately be colonized by the living things that are out there or change the things that are out there. This is Eric Zettler. Two years ago, I visited him and his wife, Linda Emerald Zettler, in Massachusetts. They are both microbiologists and worked in Woods Hole at two ocean institutes. So my lab has been heavily involved in looking at microbial diversity in the ocean, uh, partly through the census of marine life and specifically the International Census of Marine Microbes. And so we knew a lot about what was in the ocean, or at least we thought we did, until we started looking at plastic. Linda Emerald Zettler and Eric Zettler had found something quite amazing. The surface was completely coated. You couldn't see really the plastic surface hardly anywhere. It was coated with, you know, diatoms, these um, photosynthetic cells with beautiful, ornate silica shell, frustules shells, and bacterial filaments and bacterial rods and spheres, and this uh, sort of almost like gelatinous type stuff that a lot of these cells put out. This forms this biofilm that's really a very diverse living community. It's almost like a tissue. 
the plastic in the ocean was teeming with life. There was a whole new world developing on it, a microbial world. Linda called it the plastosphere. We discovered cells that seemed to be directly interacting with the plastic surface. These pit formers, as we like to call them, they really seem to be forming pits on the surface of the plastic itself. This excerpt, personally for me as a student, was so important because it reminds me that plastic is not just biocidal, because that's how we think of it, that it just it constricts life. That's why we use it for food packaging, because then, you know, it's going to make food last longer. It stops microbes from entering the food and so on. And the public awareness around plastics also talks extensively only about the toxicity and the struggle to contain plastic waste and therefore plastic toxins. Um, and listening to Linda Amaral Zetla and Eric Zetla, it sounds like we also need to consider situations where plastic sustains life. Um, so what are the implications of this <laughs> microbial activity that is occurring on plastics right now? It's still being researched, I think. And um, it's quite a while ago that I spoke with them. So an update would be great on the actual yeah. what's, what has come <laughs> out about the plastosphere since then, because there's six years of research between these excerpts and today. There are definitely organisms that can degrade certain plastics, but um, the Zettlers told me that they don't think it's a solution because we're putting so much out there and it's just going everywhere that um, they don't believe that these organisms could keep up with that. But for sure, there is a new human-made ecosystem evolving out there at sea. So yeah. I'm seeing two problems. We don't really know the microbes and we don't really know the plastics, but we're imagining <laughs> solutions where they kind of get into symbiotic relationships with each other. It's like a weird blind date we're trying to set up. It's not <laughs> so true. <laughs> and like, I also remember reading in Max LeBellon's book, um, Pollution is Colonialism, where they talk about precisely this, that we were saying that, oh, we could just use these bacteria to eat up all the plastic. It's not really a viable solution because it'll need to be scaled up quite a bit um, to have an impact. And at that scale, all plastic, internet cables, ships, spaceships, Elon Musk, uh, <laughs> drilling platforms, medical equipment, all of it at, is, is at risk. How are you going to tell Victoria to be like, yeah, maybe just eat that and, and you know, that's not going to work. Yeah, all the underwater fiber cables, all the cables that um, keep up our communication systems, they're all yeah. um, coded, of course. Yeah. I want to spend a bit more time with, with this excerpt because it also speaks to this event and this podcast's intention to move beyond catchy images of like plastic pollution that we've become used to. Um, and I think that these images serve the function of putting the responsibility of this problem on individual consumers. Um, like blaming them for littering, for not recycling. And instead, what we're doing is we're following the material at various stages of its life cycle, including those that, you know, do not directly touch human lives, um, like in this case. So, okay, let's listen to the next one. Um, and with this one, we learn about the millions of people around the world um, who do an important but poorly paid job and poorly protected job, which is sorting the world's waste. Um, the so-called waste pickers, 
Uh, it's an informal economy that exists, especially in developing countries where waste pickers um, handle a major proportion of the waste, um, which is sorting, recycling, um, disposing. And this is ga gaining recognition increasingly and workers all over the world are also beginning to organize. Um, so let's listen to your conversation with uh, Sonia Diaz, who's a garbologist from, from Brazil. You know, they live in, usually, in informal settlements with no access of, uh, sometimes, electricity, uh, good uh, roads, and they, the only uh, work they have access to is collection of uh, recyclables. This is a, a situation that the, it happens everywhere. You know, most waste speakers, you know, they face uh, numerous challenges. Uh, they, most of them, they are illiterate. Some of them might be working in open dumps in terrible conditions and some being run by vehicles because uh, if you work in an open dump, you are working in an environment that it's uh, absolutely, you know, dangerous. And the conditions waste pickers face, it's really uh, harsh everywhere in the world. Sonia says one of the biggest risks waste pickers face is the privatization of the waste management sector, when their means for making a living are taken away. Cairo, it's a very good example. They actually privatized uh, the waste collection uh, in, in Cairo, and they actually drove away, you know, thousands of Zabalins who were doing an efficient collection of uh, uh, recyclables. So this is happening everywhere. If you go to Bogota, they try to privatize uh, the uh, collection of uh, waste in, in 10 years ago and not and ignoring uh, the recyclers that had been doing this work. And if you go, it's, it's happening everywhere, you know, apart from a few cities that are trying to uh, come up with a concept and, in, and uh, the practice of inclusive recycling, uh, privatization is, um, is one of the biggest uh, threats that, that we have. When I listen to this particular episode for the first time, I couldn't help thinking about the current popularity of automation and research and development like techno solutions. And despite all of that, all of that investment, and you know, people pushing for those kinds of solutions, waste management work still remains so hazardous, like it hasn't really come very far if you look at it historically. And I'm also thinking here of um, Marco Almiero's uh, book, Waste You Scene, where he argues that wasting is a relation that produces the targeted community uh, rather than just a random selection of, yeah, we'll just put it there. And what that means is that the logistics of waste management are enmeshed with lives or people that power is willing to let go to waste. That it's okay if these people live with toxicity. It's okay if they live next to waste. And that's something that I also strongly kind of understand in the context of India, right, where I grew up, where um, the reason why our waste management infrastructure is so bad is not because we're a poor nation or anything, we've got plenty of money, but it's because the Hindu upper caste nation state does not want 
better infrastructures for lower caste workers who are forced to do this work over and over. Uh, so it's interesting how waste management is not really an infrastructural issue, if you think about it. It's a, it's a social problem. I think it's really like one of the problems of, of the system we live in that many essential workers don't get the security and can make the like livelihoods that they should be making when you consider how important they are. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, but I think that from what Sonia told me, a lot has been happening in terms of organization of waste pickers. Mm -hmm. And that sounds really promising. So all around the world, there are these waste picker organizations. She works for uh, Viego, which is also um, an organization that works with informal workers, not only waste pickers, also other, other, um, other jobs. Mm -hmm. But um, she says she's been seeing um, people who've moved up um, she's seen improvements through these organizations okay. and she hopes that there will be transgenerational improvement at least so that, you know, not whole generation by generation gets stuck in having to do this work again and again. Yeah. But she has seen young, uh, the children of waste pickers moving up, doing other jobs. I mean, I think this is such a great, like, pivotal shift where we don't talk about, oh, how do we improve the infrastructure? It's like, how do we improve the lives of the people who do all this work for us? Because that's what mainstream politics tends to do. It asks us to, like, it pits um, issues against each other and then asks us to pick one because resources are limited. They're not. In the kind of later episodes of Plastisphere, I noticed that you start looking at solutions then. and um, now we turn to episode 11, which is a conversation with a young researcher and podcaster, Brooke Baumann, about individual impact and what the limits of um, approaches like zero waste can be, right? Um, and you, I also know that you made some attempts at cutting down packaging in your own home. Yeah. How did for, that go? <laughs> for that episode, I did. Um, uh, there's a, um, a month called Plastic Free July. So I was like, okay, this year I'm doing it. And so the first thing you have to do is a waste audit. So you go through your trash every week and you um, take notes on what you find there. And um, I found a lot of uh, Tetra Packs because we were drinking oat milk and um, they came in Tetra Packs. And I was also finding pasta packaging, washing detergent containers, of course, many other things. So with those three, I started. Okay. And um, um, my partner actually went on a whole adventure, um, a nerdy adventure to make uh, oat milk himself. And uh, yeah, he got very... Um, he got very specialist in that. Uh, I started to collect uh, horse chestnuts uh, outside in the fall. I collected horse chestnuts. They contain saponins. And so if you dry them and cut them up and dry them, you can make um, washing natural washing detergent from that. So we washed with that for a year. Um, and then we got a pasta maker. So we did several things. Um, and I must say, we're not... We're not doing that anymore, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. We stopped making our own. We, there was um, oat milk in bottles at some point, mm -hmm. very expensive, but we were like, okay, we're going to buy it. It's, it takes too much time to make your own oat milk. Yeah. Um, our pasta maker is only for special occasions now, mm -hmm. and we got two cats and cats and saponines don't well, mix. So, yeah, so mix. to be honest, 
since then. <laughs> okay, yeah. well, let's listen to the conversation then. If you as an individual really accept the shame and blame, haven't you bought into the plastic industry's favorite narrative? They promote this idea that it's on consumers and communities to make this change. And then while we're completely absorbed by changing our lives and finding the best recipes for oat milk, the corporations just peacefully continue to produce more plastic and make a profit off of it. That is a very good point. Yeah, on your question of responsibility, I mean, it's tricky, but... Definitely, I think the question is, has it really been the consumers who wanted all that packaging and all those disposable items? And was this throwaway culture we live in really just a demand that the companies fulfilled? Or is it something that has also been pushed onto the markets to make a profit? And maybe it's a mixture of both, but I think it's important to understand what direction we are going now. There were these two studies recently in Science Magazine And they looked at the future on a global scale, like how will the plastic pollution problem develop under different assumptions. I think for me, the bottom line was that we need to act quickly and with determination, and we need all hands on deck to solve this issue. Because if plastics production continues to grow, it will be hard to keep up with it. Um, further in this episode, Dr. Burrell shares that we will probably see somewhere between 30 and 90 million metric tons entering the environment every year by 2030. The impact of these figures, 30, 90 million metric tons, um, didn't really hit home for me until you put it in perspective. Uh, 90 million metric tons is the same weight as about 8,900 Eiffel Towers. That's a lot of Eiffel Towers. And as you say in the podcast, 2030 is only nine years away. Now it's almost seven years away. Mm. Um, and so I want to now turn the conversation towards like the giant scales that plastic pollution forces us to consider uh, in terms of weight, of time, and just, you know, the way it's going to outlast all of us. And it makes sense that I struggle to hold these scales together in my head because The magnitude that's been manufactured, it's been made by a giant industrial system and not a single person or even a group of people. So, of course, I struggle to understand that. Um, so if I'm struggling, how do scientists or policymakers um, find or build simulations for a problem that's unfolding at these unimaginable scales? And how do they even begin to form solutions then? Yeah, I mean, in terms of understanding it, Gathering data is quite um, expensive mm. on the seas, for example. You need yeah. a ship and so forth. Um, <clears throat> they try to both gather data, but also take the available data, for example, um, data about um, waste management, um, which waste is not handled as it should be and so forth. So they take big data together and try to draw conclusions from that. But of course, those are often very rough estimates and they're different estimates mm -hmm. as to how much under which conditions is going uh, into which compartments of the environment. One um, development recently that's very important now is that uh, the United Nations Environmental Program has decided mm -hmm. to go forward towards a Global Plastics Treaty, okay. um, and hopefully it will be strong and binding, and they want to 
um, have it ready by 2024, which I think would be unprecedented yeah, in terms yeah. of speed. Yeah. So mm -hmm. I think that's a really important yeah. development. I'm really excited by that because the main aim that they're gunning for is to stop production in its tracks. And that's just, that's pretty big, I think. And it's policy. It's not activism. It's not art. It's, it's making its way into policy. That's, of course, um, one of yeah. the debated parts. <laughs> Not everybody's happy about that. Yeah, yeah, it's a big planet. And actually, the continent with the most progressive policies in terms of really trying to tackle single-use plastics is Africa. You know, the and I think Bangladesh was actually the first country that had a plastic bag ban because they have so much flooding and the plastic bags were clogging... Um, the water pipes and, and worsening flooding. Um, but, you know, Kenya and some other countries have really progressive, some really tough policies uh, that try to stop this. The other thought um, I'm having here is that um, in some countries um, where development has happened more recently, the, the last generation or the last generations, they still remember all the practices that... Uh, how they worked, you know, the bringing your own container. That was like part of the culture. Um, so they, they remember more than we do how it was before we threw everything away. But also here, we can talk to our, some of our grandparents will still remember, right? Not to have like a throwaway tissue, but you know, you could actually wash, <laughs> wash a cotton tissue. Yeah. So those are two thoughts of, I have about that. But I think our dependence on plastics is enormous, no doubt about it, yeah. everywhere. And in, different from renewable energies, for some plastics, we might not have alternatives yet. So I'm wondering, like, what are essential plastics? Like, if you think about this, what is the one thing or what are the three things that you wouldn't want to give away? that's made of plastic. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, we are basically swimming. I think yeah. what, what <laughs> I learned through this podcast is like, you know, this is my hand, but, but like, I'm not really diff I'm not really separate from the environment. I'm basically swimming through all that is in there and it swims through me. And um, yeah, we, we've started something that has its consequences and we will have to, bear them and some people will have to bear them more than more than others unfortunately yeah but um i i think i hope that we're moving forward with with this issue and that especially the plastic treaty can um accelerate the path towards solutions yeah i have a feeling like this is just the first iteration of a conversation that needs to like keep happening in these kinds of formats so if you have more questions comments write us we're, we're available over email anya has a website which is what's the uh plastosphere.earth that's easy <laughs> <laughs> um so please stay in touch and hopefully we'll have more of these listening sessions and thank you so much for your time and energy and interest um thank you i mean Thanks it's a saturday everyone. so i'm just gonna let you go now <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.